It's my pleasure to welcome back to our church and our pulpit Scott Bridges and his wife Julie is here as well. We welcome you. Uh, Scott is a friend of this congregation. He's instructed us several times. Uh, I think many of us have remarked uh, what a benefit that's been uh, when God has brought him here and he has uh, opened up the Bible to us. Scott is pastor of Wallace Memorial, uh, which is right near uh, University of Maryland. And uh, before that, Scott was on the West Coast as a church planner. So he has a, uh, a vision that spans the entire United States, uh, West Coast to East Coast. And I think one of the things that um, I will just say personally is from the get-go, Scott has been an initiator in encouraging me personally. Um, I just have always felt that from him, felt that from uh, he and his wife. So we're very grateful to have him here. I'm going to invite him up uh, to pray and read the scripture. Scott, welcome. How about we have a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that uh, when we open up your word, that we're not alone, that you promise to witness by and with your word through your Holy Spirit to our hearts. And we invite you to do that right now. We're going to take a moment and just um, arrange ourselves under you and invite you to have your way with us. And we pray that you'll do that not just for our good, but Father, we pray that you'll do it to the praise of your glorious grace. And so we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Let me get situated here. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 1 with me. Let's uh, give our attention to God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of the sinner, or sits in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way, the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. This is God's holy word. Amen. Um, Eric is a good friend of mine. He is the pianist at our church. And um, before he, uh, in another life, he was in the Marine Band and in the President's Own. And he was the chief pianist at the White House for the Reagan and then the Bush and then the Clinton administrations. So you can imagine he's a pretty phenomenal musician. One morning, um, on Saturday mornings, I, I get up early to go into the church and I edit my sermon then, try to get a cold cut. And uh, Eric was there. I've never seen him there early on a Saturday morning. And I came into the sanctuary 
where he was playing, and he stopped, and we said good morning, and I said, what, do, what are you doing? He said, I'm practicing. And knowing what now you know about him, I said, you need to practice? And he got that look that some musicians get on their faces. I'm sure Cheryl would never get this look on her face, but it's kind of like, well, I have a craft where one never stops needing to strive for improvement or perfection. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, practicing. He said, you need to practice. And you get where this went. We talked about, in the end, what a joy it was to have both of us to have a calling in life where for the rest of our lives, there's going to be a challenge to outdo ourselves, to continue to improve, to grow, to deepen in what we do. And it reminded me, it's around that time, I, I read something about my, my favorite cellist, Pablo Casals. He, he, uh, he died when he was 94, but I, without a doubt, he was the greatest cellist of the 20th century. And he practiced every day for hours until close to his death. And when he was 90 years old, somebody asked him, why do you do that? And he said, because I think I'm still making progress. Now, I take us to Psalm 1, because here it is, the, the, the psalm to begin the prayer book of the Bible. And it's not a prayer. Have you ever thought about why that is? We need to think about that to get something from it, because I will tell you that prayer is the calling that all of us share that we will always need to be practicing. Most Christians live their lives feeling like uh, they're spouting a monologue as they dog paddle in the shallow end of the prayer pool. And Psalm 1 says, no, you don't need to do that. No, you don't need to do that. See, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you how to stop having a monologue, which is what a lot of Christians feel like. They, you know, they start out kind of treating God like Jeeves the butler. Here's your list of things to do. And as they grow and, and uh, deepen in their, their uh, Christianity, they, they learn churchy ways to do a monologue, which is still kind of a variation on the theme. Psalm 1 is, no, 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 it's time to have a dialogue. Because Psalm 1 shows us that there's a bridge between God's word where God promises to speak to us and for us to respond in dialogue and back and forth. It's a precious gift. And so from now on, I, I want to challenge you to take a look at Psalm 1 and see it as like the, the instruction manual that... Uh, Okay, at the beginning of the prayer book, here's what to do with the stuff that follows. That's basically what it's saying. As a matter of fact, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, uh, said one time about Psalm 1, that this psalm is an introduction, and therefore, we can find in it the basic teaching and philosophy of the entire book. That is, a, the book of Psalms. But it is at the same time, therefore, a very good introduction to and summary of the entire Bible. For the Bible has only one message in it. Hear this. One message. Men and women in their relationship to God. Men and women in their relationship to God and what God has done 
about us and our salvation. And then take a step back and go, okay, that makes sense. The Bible is about a God who reveals himself to us, who, who intervenes in our lives and introduces himself and starts a relationship with us. And, and what, what Lloyd-Jones is saying, whether he meant to or not, but I think he's right, is that the way that we carry on that relationship is in prayer. It's in prayer. Now, a lot of people like to get on to us because we like people, you know, we meaning people in this particular kind of circle of churches. We like guys like John Calvin, and they seem kind of, well, theological. By the way, everybody's theological. Some just don't know it. Um, and, and I love in his great classic theology, the, in, the institutions of the Christian religion, that uh, he, he devotes a whole section of a systematic theology where you'd think it'd be kind of dry and academic. A whole section of it is entitled, The Way We Get the Grace of Christ. Now, if that doesn't whet your appetite, well, I'm, I'm glad you're here anyway. I hope at the end you'll have your appetite whetted. And the very first chapter in that section is entitled, well, it's, it's my favorite chapter title of any chapter I've ever read in all of literature. Listen to this and hear the passion. Prayer, which is the chief exercise of our faith, and the means by which we daily receive God's benefits. The chief exercise of our faith. Prayer. Lloyd-Jones, the way we carry on a relationship with God. Dialogue. Prayer. Calvin went on to say, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is in every way. And then he goes on for 70 pages trying not to fail with his words and explaining how necessary it is. Because it is the chief exercise of our faith. And the beautiful thing now about, about Psalm 1 is it says, you want to really go to the deep end, then wed the word of God to your prayer life. Let the word of God have its way with you, that God's voice is speaking to you, and you interact, and it will take you places you've never been. It will have you praying things that you never would have prayed on your own. And it will benefit you in ways you cannot imagine. So, it's kind of a bit of a long introduction, but I want you to get wound up for it, because what we're going to try to talk about is what to do with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is very clear. It has a goal. Then it's instruction. It has means. And then it actually gives you a picture, the result, the results that come from, from one way or the other of interacting with Psalm 1. So it's goals and means and then results. And so we need to understand that. And when we begin to understand that, then we're at a place to go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. What's the goal? And it starts with the very first word, blessed. Now, um, when, when you translate that word from the Hebrew into the, 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 the Greek and then you get it into the Latin, uh, that's where we get the word beatitude. 
And so from the Greek and the Latin and the Hebrew, uh, scholars want to try to translate that as, oh, how very happy. And I, I will tell you, frankly, as, as, a, as a Presbyterian pastor, I make, I'm pretty uncomfortable when people try to talk me into being happy about something. It just So what do we mean? Oh, how very happy. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about it, because honestly, like, like with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, oh, how very happy are the poor in spirit. And you're like, yeah, what? <laughs> it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But, but you let the context define, define what blessed is. And what we see here is that a blessed condition comes from three things that you do or don't do. You avoid you embrace, and you practice. Let's talk about each of these in, in terms, in, in turn, but I think it's really important for us to understand that it, it puts feet on it. It, it. It's like, okay, I can handle that kind of blessedness. You know, and the first one is avoid. And by the way, um, some of you might be saying, yeah, blessed is the man who walks not in the council, stands not in the way of the sinner, uh, you know, sits not in the seat of the sky. You know, okay, avoid. We get it. And that's what the Bible's about. It's just don't. And you'll be okay. That's not at all what's being talked about. You, you need to get beyond kind of that and understand a couple of things. First is that, that when there are negatives, particularly like in the wisdom literature where, where there's poetry, and the book of Psalms is, well, songs, so it's, it's poetry, that it's a Hebrew literary device. It's, it's a way that they express poetry, and they did it by contrast. This is no more pejorative than like, you know, when, when you go to get a, a diamond and the jeweler shows it on a, a, a velvet, black velvet background. It's, it's to make the goodness to shine out for the preciousness that it has innately of itself. And that's what's going on. But then what you see when you look at it is that there's a progression. And what we're, being, we're having described to us is blessed is the man who avoids a lifestyle, a particular kind of lifestyle. Because do you see the regression here? You're walking and then you stop. And then you sit and you make yourself at home. And what's being said here is that over time, through innumerable choices that one makes every day, there's a lifestyle that gets set up. And blessed is the person who goes for another kind of lifestyle. And it's important for us to understand that. And you don't want to go that way. And so, and so this isn't like, you know, a God going around finding out who's having fun and walking with the counsel of the wicked and squashing them. It's, it's you don't want to go down that road. You know, I couldn't help but think about when I was, I was writing this in my own study um, of, of uh, uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol when Ebenezer Scrooge's fiance is breaking up with him. And he demands to know why. And she says, well, you've changed. And he demands to know how he has changed. And listen to these damning words. She said, in an altered spirit. In another atmosphere of life, with 
with another hope as its great end. That's a, that's a beautiful definition of what the Bible calls idolatry. Anything that gets an inappropriate amount of your affection or your attention or your allegiance. And, and so starting out, the psalmist, Psalm 1 is being our friend. Hey, friend, you, you don't want to go down there. Let's, just, let's get that out of the way right now. And here's why. Okay, we don't want to go down that. Instead, what you want to do is you want to embrace. We've got the black background. Now let's look at the diamond. What do you do? You embrace. But what you embrace is the law of the Lord. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. Now, again, we get lots of picturesque language again about this. This poetry, this contrast. The Hebrew word for delight you might have heard of before, though you didn't know that that was the Hebrew word for delight. It's Eden. But instead of the lifestyle of the wicked and the sinner and the scoffer, he makes his Eden. Again, a lifestyle kind of word. The law of the Lord. A treasure. And it's on that law that he meditates day and night. So what we need to understand here is two words that we should unpack, the law and meditation. And law has, again, love Hebrew, it's a very sparing language, but it's just chock full of pictures. The word Torah, you've heard, law can mean, you know, the Ten Commandments. It can mean the moral law law of God from Moses. It can mean the entire scripture. Here, obviously, it means the entire scripture. But the word Torah has a strange etymology. Its original meaning was target. It was a target set up when people were practicing casting javelins. And that is a beautiful picture for the invitation of making your lifestyle. Okay, you want want to go down the right road? Then I can think of no more strategic target for you to aim at than the bullseye of God's word. That's what's being said. Your Eden is to hit the bullseye. And it starts to get more uh, attractive that it's so very strategic. And I want to remind you a bit, just a bit, out of why it's so very strategic. And I'm not going to go to other places in the Bible because it proves it. I'm going to go to a document that is a summary of the teaching of the Bible. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Some guys got together in the mid-1600s in Westminster Abbey, and they uh, tried to answer Parliament's uh, um, command to figure out or to explain what the church should look like and what the Bible teaches. And, And the very first chapter they had was the Bible. And I think that was really wise of them because, honestly, you you know, in Christianity, you don't have anything to talk about until you've got the Bible as your basis. And, And again, like Calvin, you tend to think of these guys as kind of academic and dry. At least I I come out of, I was drag kicking and screaming into being not just a Presbyterian, but a Presbyterian minister. So I kind of had that, that pejorative view of them. 
And I, I thought it would be dry and academic. And I'm, I was, I'm just stunned by how very supernatural, very reliant upon the supernatural these guys were in describing why the Bible is so strategic. In the fifth paragraph of chapter 1, it says this, Our full persuasion, that's ours, and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, of the Bible, is from, hear this, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, witnessing by and with our hearts that it is indeed the Word of God. Paragraph 6 we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. Paragraph 10 speaks of the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. So what that means is, and this is why it's good to wed the Word and our prayer life together, is that when we open this book, we start a supernatural transaction. And if we attend, if we attend, the Spirit will speak. Martin Luther used to say, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And watch out. If you listen to it, it will get you. It will. And give you things to talk to about with the Almighty that you never dreamed you would have. So, the Torah, strategic target. But then to meditate. Again, I love the Hebrew. Excuse me. The Hebrew word for meditate means literally to mutter. <laughs> you know, and... and um, I don't know if any of you look like you're the age where you walk around talking to yourself um, like me. Um, my children have just left the house, so I'm more free to do it without them looking at me strangely. But um, again, Lloyd-Jones, uh, that pastor, brings up another kind of dimension for it because it's not just muttering to God and talking to him about things, but it's learning to take what he has to say to you and, and speak it to your own heart. Lloyd-Jones one time wrote, have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And hear that. Because one of the things we've got to do to have a successful prayer life is not just wed God's word when it speaks to us to our prayer life so that we're dialoguing with God, but then getting what we need from him to go back and speak back to our hearts. We've got to learn. The Puritan said to preach the gospel to our hearts because your hearts are always preaching something to you. And, and you know what? We don't even hear it. It's like the white noise. It just you, you get used to it and you drown it out because your heart has been preaching to you all your life. Even before you knew English, your heart was saying something to you. And my heart, you know, being a pastor's heart, has a three-point sermon that it preaches repeatedly to me. It's, it's the sermon of the orphan. I'm all on my own. And it's all up to me, and I'm not doing so good. And by the way, my heart says good on purpose because it knows bad grammar really bugs me. 
you, you got to think about that. And I need the truth. I, I need a truth that comes from the Lord that I've interacted with him about so that I'm armed to go back and speak the truth into that lie. And many others like it. And so what we need is a way to learn to speak. And again, we cannot forget that the goal of all of this is Eden. Is that you practice this craft until you find delight. It's not just a discipline. And, and there is discipline here. We're going to talk about that. The whole means part, second main point, is all about that. It's not just that. But it's getting to the point where Eden, delight, is your experience. One of my great heroes, Jonathan Edwards, in a wonderful essay, if you ever want to break, you know, cut your teeth on Edwards, write down A Divine and Supernatural Light. It's one of my favorite essays of his. And in it, he talks about this kind of delight. And he says, and, and here's where we need to go for in terms of quality. He says, there's an infinity of difference between understanding that honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of the honey. This is telling you, someone, your friend, you want to taste the sweetness. Go down this road. Cultivate the garden delight by wetting the word to your prayer life so that the Almighty and you can establish a dialogue that gives you something to speak the truth to your heart about to the point that you know the one we call delight. Um, so meditation, I want you to think about it this way. It's not, you know, om, that's Eastern meditation. It's not, uh, you know, just memorizing stuff, although that has something to do with it. Again, we're going to talk about it. But again, the goal needs to be clear in your mind. It's, it's where you arm your mind to go down to your heart and your mind takes your heart by the hand and says, come with me, my love, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to behold his glory and the beauty of his holy temple. It's like this. Uh, I've got a 23-year-old daughter and, and I didn't know it until she came into adulthood but there's a spiritual gift called the, the gift of gift giving. And I know that because Emily has it. <clears throat> so two, two Christmases ago, uh, for Christmas, she gave me two tickets to go see my very favorite play ever. And yes, I do enjoy the theater. Uh, Henry V and a seat at the Folger. Now, how cool is that? Now, the gift of gift giving always gives back because she knew I would take her to Founding Farmers, her favorite restaurant, and let her get whatever she wanted. But that's beside the point. She got two tickets. It's like she's the mind and she took me the heart to say, I have tickets to go and see glory. And it was fun. That's meditation. It's not a dry intellectual exercise. It's your mind learning to woo your heart with the truth God's given you in his word. Okay, great. That's the goal. We're going to go quicker. Means. 
I'll be honest, I can't remember where I came across this to begin with, but there was a time um, in, in my life when I was kind of uh, enamored or just curious about the beginning of the monastic movement, particularly the Benedictine order, the first monks ever. And, and they, th those guys came up with something they called the Lectio Divina, and basically the, the divine order. It's a, it was kind of a way to order their lives uh, to be one of devotion. And somewhere along there, there was a variation on that theme, a, a three-movement variation that I took and made my own. Now, look, you don't have to make this your own, but my challenge to you is then find something that you do make your own. Three movements, retentio, cognitio, delectio. And I don't think I have to translate those for you. Retain it. Get it in your head. As part of why I broke with the custom of grace here and, and me not just reading God's word to you, but reciting it to you. I've got a moleskin, one of those, those notebooks, and, and I, I, just, just so I would retain things, like I write helpful things like Psalm 1, things I don't want to forget, you know, my name, my address, you know, things like that. I, 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 write, I write God's word, places in his word that, is, that have had its way with me where, where the Almighty did meet me and taught me to take those things and preach them to my own heart. Like Psalm 40, you know, it's not just a good song by you two. It's a wonderful song about redemption. But at the very end, David goes on to say, you know, may all those who love you rejoice and be glad in you. May they ever say great is the Lord. And then David gets super vulnerable in the last part of verse 17. And he says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Now that is a sermon I preach to my orphan heart multiple times a day. And I'm not kidding you. Psalm 40, 17c. Precious things like that so that I can remember them. I get them in my head. I keep them through review so that then I can mutter. I can, I can dialogue back and forth with God and get what I need from him to preach to my own heart. And that's the cognitio part. I described what that looks like to you and my daughter buying me the tickets and going. And I think it's really important for us to understand how very precious that is. But how far you can go with cognitio. You can go, okay, well, that, that's great. You know, I, I get to Psalm 4017, but where do I go? Well, I tell you what, uh, if, if, you're, if you want a primer on this, um, you just feel like you need some training wheels for a while. And I, by the way, I did it, and it was wonderful. Uh, Google A Simple Way to Pray by Martin Luther. I've got the PDF that I downloaded years ago on my laptop. A simple way to pray. Luther was getting his hair cut one day. Some of the people in the world need their hair to be cut. Not sure why. Um, and, and Peter, his, his barber, said, look, you know, you're a theologian. You, you know these things. You've been a monk. You know how to pray. I'm just a simple man. Can you teach me a simple way to pray? And, and what Luther does when he gets down to it is he teaches Peter, his barber, how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And do you know how long you can take to pray through the Lord's Prayer? I, I, I'll just give you some ideas about the kinds of things I find myself praying about 
when I start to pray through the Lord's Prayer. I start with our. And I can go for a long time with our. Because I live in a very hyper-individualistic society like you did. As a matter of fact, the most hyper-individualistic society in the history of mankind. Um, a sociologist, I, it was from one of the University of California system schools, I think, and I can't remember which one, probably Berkeley. Um, he described American evangelical Christianity this way. As a large group of people gathered together at the same place, at the same time, to do their own thing. We don't understand what it is to belong to a body. We don't understand the privileges and take advantage of that. We don't understand the responsibilities we have. And that informs my prayer life a lot. As a pastor, I pray that all the time. I go an hour. I'm not on my own. One more thing to preach to my orphan heart. I have a family. I pick up this book and I read redemptive history, the story of God saving a people for himself. And the people that he's saving for himself, they're my people. They're my family. If you're a Christian, they're your family too. I belong. That's what we have here. And then our Father, well, you, you know, you've heard my three-point orphan sermon. How far can I pray through the fact that I have a Father and that He's the Father of us all? And then I have to get in confession. You know, I, there was a, a guy, what well, was Wilson Benton? One dog roll, a, a pastor, a, a father in the faith to, to Glenn and, and Meg and Julie and me. Who, uh, you know how you hear one, something one time and it's with you for the rest of your life? He said, oh, to dwell above with the saints we love, yes, that would be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> but when it's my brothers and my sisters who aren't necessarily worthy of my love, it really changes the way I look at them. and calls me back to forgive them from my heart. Did you see how far you can go down? I'm just talking to you about the things that I find God bringing me to pray about that normally I wouldn't pray about. And that's cognitio. So a simple way to pray by Martin Luther. So that's, that's something where you can go. And, and I, I, I want to motivate you I, I, uh, uh, in a couple of ways. One, well, just this way. A few weeks ago, I, I uh, was not feeling well at all. And my doctor was out of town, and I was desperate enough to go to one of those, I call it a dock in the box, you know, kind of one of those insta-doctors kind of thing, and, and I, I was diagnosed with double lung pneumonia, and uh, the woman that, that was taking care of me, it was very early in our conversation when, uh, when we realized that she was my sister in Christ, and we had a great talk, she found out I was a pastor, and she thought that was a wonderful thing, she's from Uganda, and, and she said something to me. She said, it is so important, speaking of my vocation, my calling, it is so important to have a noble purpose for the days we have been given. And I said, well, Dr. Osiri, you've got a noble purpose for the days that you've been given. And she acknowledged that and thanked me. And she said, but, you know, I need to tell you, Pastor, that I, I've, I've just completed another more noble purpose. I was like, What? She said, well, I come from a small tribe in Uganda. And we grew up, you know, in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, 
very conservative in Africa. And, uh, but there are no hymns in my, my mother tongue. So I got some friends together with me, and we began to translate the hymn book we grew up with into our mother tongue. And I just recently finished the best one for last, and it was the hardest one to do. It's so hard to get the poetry right in our language and still keep the meaning. I said, well, well what was the best one? She said, Amazing Grace. And when I sang it by myself, it changed me forever. And that's a noble purpose. What God is saying to you through Psalm 1 is, Eden. The noblest purpose is to live in relationship with him, to make that your delight, and here are the means by which you can do that and cultivate it for the rest of your life. And then again, you know, Hebrew poetry, the book ends. It starts out with the warning, it ends with the warning. You know, the wicked are not so. They're the chaff. They're not going to make the cut and the judgment. They're going to be cast out of the fellowship and truly be alone and eventually perish. Again, you don't want to go that way. Instead, as you cultivate the light, as you cultivate Eden, to remind yourself that the Lord knows your way, the way of the righteous, the way of the ones who are going to his word and sitting under it, trying to learn to listen to who he is and what it is that he has to see. And, and those are the ones, and I want you to remember that this is presumably a Psalm of David's, as most of the, the, the first book of the Psalms uh, is, are made up of his Psalms. And I lived in a very arid country. I had a friend, a, a roommate of mine in grad school who'd lived in Israel for a while down in the south. And I said, so what was that like where, where David spent his outlaw years? And he said, well, imagine living life sitting in, in an oven that's been turned on with somebody blowing sand through a hairdryer in your face all the time. I think that's a great definition of arid. And so it means a lot when it says that here's this tree that, you know what, the fruit comes when it's supposed to. And the leaf doesn't get well yellow when the hairdryer is blowing sand in its face because it's got a stream. And again, he meditates day and night. How often does a tree take a sip from the water of the stream that it's rooted by continuously. I couldn't help but be reminded of, of, of something. I, I did a lot of growing up on my grandparents' ranch and, and dairy farm in, in Oklahoma. And um, my grandfather got back from World War II and he built the thing, with, the whole ranch with his own hands. And one thing he did is he got a sapling of a walnut tree, a black walnut tree, and he planted it so that it would give shade to the house. And that thing became a monster. I mean, a, a trunk this big. Gorgeous work of God's creation. Shaded the house all day long. You could sit in the heat of the summer in its shade and count on a breeze. And it was beautiful. But eventually my grandfather passed. And when my grandmother, at the age of 89, finally got tired of fixing fence uh, and, and moved away, um, my dad and, and my brothers and me, we, we pulled up a sapling of that walnut tree, a daughter of it. And we planted it in my parents' backyard for my mother. My father wisely planted it by a well he'd had dug when 
we first moved into that area and that estate. And we only had to go down 13 feet to hit the water table. In other words, there was a stream there all the time. And that thing is a monster now. And a, and a poema. That's the Greek word for God's workmanship from Philippians 2.10. It's, it's a masterpiece of, of beauty that God made. And the invitation is, come, sip, make it your life, enjoy. And again, what we get is this gospel pattern here. Because God's the one who started this relationship. God knew that you were messed up. And still, what did he do? He came and he found a way to have this kind of relationship with you. He knew that you would tend to walk in the counsel of the wicked, to stand in the way of the sinner, and to sit in the seat of the scoffer. And he said, no, I'm going to show you a different way. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we get the way. It's not a mistake that he is the word of God, the word of God incarnate. And that when we dig deep and we swim in the deep end of the pool of prayer, we meet somebody there. And it's him, the Lord of grace. The Lord who paid a price to have a relationship with you. That is a foundation for Eden, for delight. Let's give him thanks. Well, we do want to give you thanks, Father, that you gave us your word and, and you told us how to use it in Psalm 1. Father, we look forward to the dialogues that we're going to have. We thank you most of all that your word was not content to sit in a book, but became a man and walked among, among us and took on the penalty for our wickedness that we could know what it is to live in the land of delight. We thank you, and we ask that you would take us by the hand and guide us through your word. In the name of Jesus, the word of God. Amen.